I don't know how to describe it. It's in magic. <laughs> so I was involved with the Diamond Jubilee and had a role around security. During that planning exercise, there were lots and lots of meetings. I happened to be in Atlanta. I had made that phone call, as I described earlier, and it was more just spending a few minutes between meetings. And they said, hey, listen, I really think this guy could use some help. If you've got some time, that'd be great. And this was right about the time the Darbar was actually going to happen. I got the first interview when I was in Atlanta during the Darbar. Second call when I was in Houston during the Darbar. Phone calls were back and forth. We were leaving messages for each other and they were trying to find a window. There was no free time. Everything was just crazy busy. It was actually the last day Hasman was doing his last Darbar in Houston. My phone call was all of 30 minutes and they really wanted to know, could I join right away? And Hasman was leaving that day. Instead of going home to LA from Houston, I took the job. Having been on the road for two weeks, I went straight to Chicago. <laughs> Life can be pretty tough. We're told to balance our careers, family, health, finances, and everything else. But in today's fast-paced world, is that even possible? This is The Smiley Connection, a podcast produced by the Smiley Professionals Network. On this show, we aim to answer that very question by learning from those that are already doing it so that you can grow both professionally and personally. Hi, and yawning with everyone. It's your host, Sony Gossam. I'm currently sitting in my home in Chicago, where I've been for most of this year. And before the pandemic started, I had been living in DC for three and a half years, the first time I left my parents' home without an end in sight. Now, I've left home at other points in time too, for college, which was three hours away, and then again for two out-of-state internships in Connecticut and New York City. And while I felt the adrenaline and thrill of venturing out into the great big world on my own, it took many years until I felt fully comfortable. Now, that was me as a young adult. Leaving home can sometimes be a pivotal coming of age moment. It pushes you outside of your comfort zone. It makes you explore the unknown, learn new skills, and discover yourself. That was also true for Golub Gossip, this week's guest on the show, who I have no relation to. Ghalib is the Chief Information Officer at the Los Angeles Times, where he is responsible for leading the news organization's digital, data, and technology transitions. Unlike me, Ghalib left home at the age of 10. And also unlike me, Ghalib swapped continents, moving close to 4,000 miles away from his parents in Pakistan for an education in London. I couldn't imagine being that far away from my parents at 10 years old, but Ghalib was ready for it. The taste of freedom and adventure was calling his name. I chatted with Ghalib about his life experiences, starting in Burundi, where he was born, and how he got to where he is now. But we broke the conversation up into two episodes. You'll hear the first part today. In the first half, the C-suite executive talks about how he landed his job while volunteering during Diamond Jubilee for His Highness the Aga Khan. He also talks about the importance of seva, or service, the power of networking, and of course, his time in London. But first, let's learn a little bit about what he does today and how he ended up at the Los Angeles Times. I am an Ismaili Muslim. I believe that to be first and foremost, and I am a Chief Information Officer for the Los Angeles Times today. A day in the life of a Chief Information Officer changes from industry to industry, but for me, 
certainly given COVID and a variety of things that are going on today is somewhat unique. But my responsibility is to ensure that the business effectively runs with IT being an enabler. So what's it like being a part of the C-suite? What are some of the pressures that you face? The biggest challenges have always been around making sure we remain profitable. But there's a big piece of ethics involved. There's a big piece of ensuring that we're doing the right thing. Like most businesses, generally, whether they're mostly for profit, by definition, they're trying to make sure that they make money. But for us, there's a very big civic component to it. So in the event that there is some sort of a pandemic, a calamity, some sort of newsworthy circumstance, we tend to put down our paywall. So when we've had the COVID pandemic, we write incredibly thought-provoking content that is actually informing our readers and the community at large. And so we don't charge them for that. So there's a bit of a balance that has to happen That costs money, obviously. We've given up revenue as a result. And so we just have to come up with a careful balance as to how we work around the the operations of that type of decision. Mm -hmm. So how did you land this current role? So I used to be the CIO for a Tribune company years ago. And then I went off and did a few other things. I learned about the transaction in the paper, as a matter of fact that there was possibly an acquisition afoot of the Los Angeles Times and the San Diego Union-Tribune. So I reached out to some senior members of the Los Angeles Times that I had known before just to understand what was going on and maybe pass on some congratulations. And the conversation was a little different in the sense that the question was, well, what are you doing right now? Because they knew of my background and knew of my history of having run the company from a technology perspective before. And ironically, this was around the time of Diamond Jubilee. And I said that, you know, I hadn't really thought about it. I was doing some other work at the time and I didn't express myself in terms of volunteering that I was doing at the point. But it led to essentially the role. Joined as a consultant because the acquisition hadn't happened yet. So I was helping with the due diligence component of making sure the transaction was set up correctly and had the appropriate transition services agreements in place and so on and so forth. But it was more a consulting role initially, and when the transaction actually concluded, I joined as the executive vice president and CIO. Do you miss consulting? (laughs) I don't think you ever get out of being a consultant once you are a consultant, because you really have to be flexible. There's a lot of gray areas that you've got to try and work around. You've got to be fluid with the business, with your peer groups in the C-suite. You're working with the CFO. You're working with the chief revenue officer the chief operating officer, and everybody's got a different set of criteria and problems to solve. So I don't think that consulting element ever changes, but having a good business acumen really helps. I think it's not just about knowing IT really, really well. It's really understanding the business is as important, if not probably more. So there are a couple of things that you mentioned that I want to talk about. So first, you said that the role that you have now is because of reaching out to people that you knew. And growing up, when I was in high school, even in college, people would always say your career changes based on who you know and not what you know. (laughs) How do you feel about that? And do you think that's true or do you think there's still a little bit of both? I think it's definitely a little bit of both. It is a lot to do with who you know that helps you open doors, but it's what you know that carries you past the doorway and keeps you there. So what I mean by that is even if you have great relationships and you've got 
somebody that can help you make a great introduction with the hiring manager or the HR person or whoever you're going to make that first connection with. It's really, you're selling yourself at that point. And if you don't know what you're talking about and you can't articulate how you've done things, express your experiences, your serious commitment to getting the job done, if you're just out of school, clearly experience isn't quite there yet, but making sure that you can in fact sell yourself based on what it is you know, what it is you're prepared to learn and what it is you're prepared to contribute. It's a hard sell. What advice or tips do you have for people who might be in the first or second year of college and they just have maybe one internship under their belt and they are still trying to figure out how to expand their network? How does someone go from not knowing people in an industry that they're interested in to being able to get their name out there? Yeah, so I think the current generation is incredibly lucky, right? The ones that are in college today probably have access to a lot more organizations, both inside of our community and outside our community, right? So a lot of universities are doing, like you said, internship programs. I think the challenge that most kids have today, most of the graduates, undergraduates, is really trying to figure out what they really want to do. Many of them have good exposure to mentors. They have good exposures to people that have done some stuff that they think is really cool, very interesting, something they definitely would like to try out. But without those types of things, you're basically a bookworm. You're going to go through school. You're going to come out with a degree that somebody suggested or you thought might be the right thing. I think the recommendation to those that are finished their primary requirements and are going to define their direction, the final area of focus that they want to get into, whether it's medicine, IT, fashion, what have you, they really need to find mentors. They need to find somebody they can really look to to help them understand and guide what's the pros and cons of their particular area of of expertise. But internships are very important, I think. That's all really great advice. The other thing I wanted to talk about, you mentioned, I think it was 2018 when this merger was going on and you were brought on to help with consulting. And you said that at the same time, Diamond Jubilee was happening. Did you play a role in the Diamond Jubilee efforts here in the U.S.? And what did that look like while trying to get this job deal for yourself at the same time? How did that work out? I don't know how to describe it. It's magical. <laughs> so I was involved with the Diamond Jubilee. I had been involved with the Gold Jubilee as well. But Diamond Jubilee, I had a role around security. And so I was involved with both Atlanta and Houston and helped develop a team and put a bunch of incredibly great volunteers together to help manage the Jamaat, manage the various portions of parking and so on and so forth. During that planning exercise, there were lots and lots and lots of meetings. Those that uh, were involved would remember. I happened to be in Atlanta. During one of the planning meetings, they would go weekends long, what have you. And I had made that phone call, as I described earlier, that I'm reaching out just to find out about the transaction. And it was more just spending a few minutes between meetings, thought to give somebody a quick phone call to say hi. And they said, hey, listen, I really think this guy could use some help in the IT space around diligence. If you've got some time, that'd be great. I said, well, I'm kind of busy right now, but I'm happy to to jump in when it might make sense. And this was right about the time the the Darbar was actually going to happen. I got the first interview with part of the team that was actually doing the diligence when I was in Atlanta during the Darbar. And then I got a second call when I was in Houston during the Darbar. 
and the phone calls were kind of back and forth. We were leaving messages for each other, and they were trying to find a window where I could have the second interview. And for those that remember the Durbar, there was no free time. Everything was just crazy busy. And I found a window right after the point where Azuram had gone into the Durbar, gone into the hall. And I knew I had about 30 minutes because I was on security, but on the outside. And with Hazmam in the hall, I figured probably a safe time to pick up a quick phone call and get this interview done. It was actually the last day Hazmam was doing his last tabar in Houston. And the phone call was all of 30 minutes. It was very quick. And they really wanted to know, could I join right away? How soon could I start? And that's kind of how I got that job. It wasn't even really much of an interview. It was like, we need you right now. Can you please start tomorrow? And how's your mom was leaving that day? <laughs> yeah. So what did you do? I took the job. Instead of going home to LA from Houston, I, having been on the road for two weeks, one week in Atlanta and one week in Houston, I went straight to Chicago. <laughs> wow. What a whirlwind. <laughs> like I said, I don't know any other way to describe it other than magical. I did not have another consulting role or anything lined up after Darbar. I had taken some time off. I figured I'll do something after it was all said and done. And ironically, the very next day I was working. I think depending on how you look at it and depending on the type of person one is, the situation illuminates this idea of when you give back to your community, when you provide seva good things happen to you. The timing of it is just very, very, as you say, it's magical. It is. I think Seva is in our DNA. As you're growing up through middle school, high school, you're with the family, you're going to Jamaica, you're doing all the right things because you really don't have a choice. After college, you get a job, all of a sudden you're back in the community. And Seva becomes a very important part of your life. And I think that's just, like I said, in our DNA, it's not going anywhere. I think it's just going to continue on, and I think it's very, very fruitful. I know in this worldly life, there's always so much going on, and there's a lot of pressure to succeed, to climb that ladder in our careers, and sometimes we can be just so, so very busy. So how do you make time to give back to the community or to make that effort to balance our faith with the worldly life? How do you do that? I make time. I have gone out of my way to lead by example to my kids. Uh, my wife and I both have been very involved with the community. We've both served. My wife has served as a uniform volunteer. We've both served on various committees. I've served on the council. I've served on a variety of boards. I've been on the focus board. And they've all been incredibly insightful and valuable to me in a way to give back everything I've done and achieved has come from within the community and the seva that the forefathers have done. I do that specifically to set an example for my kids and for my friends and family that are around me, because I think that's very important to give back. Definitely. And then shifting gears just a little bit and taking it back to your past, could you walk us through your early childhood memories and what that was like? My grandparents met and married in East Africa. So they're originally from India, emigrated to East Africa looking for a better opportunity. My parents came along in Kenya and Uganda. And then as they married, 
moved to Burundi, which is where I was born. And so Uzumara, Burundi is more center of the continent in Africa. Like I said, born there, my brother was born there. That's just the two of us. And then we subsequently emigrated to Karachi for a variety of reasons. This is just prior to the conflict with Idi Amin, but we did go to Karachi, went to an American school there. We lived in an extended family, unlike today. Aunts, uncles, cousins, we didn't really call them cousins. We just call them brothers, cousin brothers, cousin sisters. Just a big group. All ate together, all went to Jamaatkana together, all went to school together. Very much a small community. And then I think it was Garden Jamaatkana. Did that every Friday. Uh, I remember running around looking for my parents, trying to find a way to get home because I was tired. <laughs> That's all I remember. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid too, and my parents would just spend so much time. My mom has always been a volunteer in Jamaatkana, and they would just spend so much time afterwards just talking to people and helping people and talking to aunties and uncles. And as a kid, I was like, I don't, okay, I talked to my friends, but I don't care anymore. Like, we're done. Can we go home now? I just want to watch cartoons. <laughs> That's right. It's funny because now I do that because it's a social venue to meet up with everybody you know, and you're chatting and getting caught up from a week's having not met each other. Unless you're going to Jamaatkan every day and maybe you're not there as long. But back then, I seem to remember only going on a Friday, which was a really big deal. And going there was like, there's no coming back anytime soon. <laughs> what prompted you to move from Karachi to London? So back in those days, being an extended family, if you wanted to get anything done, it was very patriarchal. So if you wanted something, it would be, you go straight to your grandfather. There's no point asking your parents. They really have no say. <laughs> And my grandfather was very much a supporter of education in a really big way. And so it got to a point where all of us were in an American school in Karachi and he felt through, I'm not sure how, but he felt at one point that the education there was just not good enough. And so he wanted to have all the kids go to London to get educated. So that was the push. It wasn't by choice or by design, it was more of a directive. <laughs> And all the kids went to London and parents would effectively rotate. We went to a variety of different schools and it's a big, broad spectrum of age group. So when you say all the kids went to London, do you mean you, your brother and all your cousin siblings? Yeah. How many of you guys were there? I'm trying to think. It had to be 10, 12. Wow. It was a bunch of us. There was five aunts and uncles. They all had an average of maybe two, three kids. And you guys all lived together in a big home, or what was that like? Yeah, in Karachi, there was two homes, actually, because we couldn't fit everybody in one. But the other one was more of a, <laughs> like, overflow Jamaica, because that was your house you wanted to go sleep at. But in the mornings, you'd get up, go to school, then you'd drop by the other house, pick up everybody, and then you'd go to school and then come back. Everything pretty much happened at the main house. You spent all your time there, and then you only went to the other house to sleep, and you'd come back the next day. Sounds really fun. It was wild. It was very different. What are some of your favorite memories of that time? My grandfather was a very private person. So being able to run out into the streets and go socialize and hang out with friends wasn't a thing. So we had a fairly large home and there were slides and swings and all kinds of stuff at home. So we didn't really have occasion to go anywhere. So my memories were get up in the morning, have breakfast, I was an early riser, mm -hmm. and I'd try and see what kind of mischief I could get into. I mean, that was my thing. 
That's the typical young kid. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. You wake up and it's like, all right, on my agenda, mischief. But what kind of mischief? <laughs> Start with and end with. <laughs> <laughs> so moving forward, you said that your grandfather, he had this mandate for all the kids to go off to London for school. Did your parents have any say in this or did they just sort of take a back seat? You know what? I think everybody bought into that because you might remember a lot of the farmans were very much centered around education. Most of my parents and forefathers were all merchants. They started businesses. They figured out how to become entrepreneurs in selling widgets and gadgets and tea, coffee, whatever. But it wasn't based on education. And I think a lot of the farmans really made a roadmap for what the next generation really needed to do. And I think it was just the playbook that they all followed along. Education was the next step that we had to do, and we all did it. It wasn't a decision. It was, let's get on with it. Yeah, it was like, this is the next phase of life, and, and you expected it. Yeah, yeah, it really was. And then what year was it when you first got to London, and what was that like? So I got to London in 1973 without dating myself too much. I got there just a week or so before my 10th birthday. And we all initially lived together in a fairly large place. I was the youngest at that time. And so some of my cousins were a fair bit older that were ready for college or university. And so they went off to university. It really was an exercise in, all right, we're all here now, so now what? It's getting enrolled into various schools, whether it's anywhere from university to high schools to middle schools. And so we all split up. Most of them were in the same geography. Some of them were in different cities, but they all basically got into schools and got on with it. Finished, got degrees, or attempted to get degrees, and some got into work. But it was really a whole different lifestyle. At 10 years old, moving from three different continents. So was it jarring for a 10-year-old to go from Burundi to Pakistan and then to London, which is so completely different? Yeah. Were there any challenges in assimilating? I thought of it as a bit of an adventure. In Pakistan, you had help that pretty much took care of your every need. You had breakfast prepared for you. You had somebody that drove your car. You were taken places. And in London, we didn't have any of that. So the cultural shock, if you will, of the change, I actually thought it was great. I thought it was really cool. I had to figure out how to get on public transportation. I had to figure out a lot of different things. The grocery store. I never been inside of a grocery store. But then I got a bike and had to figure out my way between home and the grocery store. You know, like when you get your car for the first time or your license, you're volunteering to go anywhere and everywhere just to get in the car. That was me with the bike. <laughs> I want to go to the grocery store. Anybody had a, a chore, I'd want to go do it. Just go explore. When you were in London and you and your brother and your cousins arrived at such a young age, was there anyone taking care of you at the time in London? Yes. Yeah, so the thinking was, and it seemed to work fairly well, is out of the five pairs of aunts and uncles, my parents included, they would all effectively rotate because they were still a pretty big presence in Pakistan at the time, you know, the businesses and so on and so forth. This was just a school venture, if you will, like boarding school, except in your own place. And so the, each of the sets of parents were to rotate. It just never got to my parents ever. <laughs> it seemed like all the other parents came out, but mine didn't. But yeah, there was always parental involvement there. After I got through high school, being the youngest, most everybody was settled in doing something. So I was like the last of them to come out the fold, if you will. And so I think I was a bit of a renegade. <laughs>
It's very interesting how all the aunts and uncles took turns flying up to London to take care of the batch of kids. It does seem like a very different experience. It was a very big commitment. You don't see that today. The whole extended family model generally does not exist. It does in some places. Clearly, parts of Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, where the families still are very close, still in separate homes, not in very, very large homes, but they're still very close, but not all under one roof, generally speaking. How do you feel about that? Do you feel like it's bad that we're moving away from that kind of model? I really think something is lost in that. Economically, it's harder. Physically, it's harder to put everybody under one roof. Trying to get a 10-bedroom house could be economically a bit of a challenge. But I think being in close proximity with them, you know, I have to say, not to digress too much, but I think COVID's made a huge progress to that. My parents live in Seattle. My brother and his family, he's married with kids, lives in Santa Monica. I'm 20 minutes from him. Myself and my wife, my family is here. I've got one daughter in Boston. And because of COVID, we get on FaceTime every single day. There's no Jamaat Kana, and my mom insists on Dua, which is great. We would have done it anyway, but timing may have been a bit of a challenge, just chit-chatting about the day, what are we having for dinner that night, and what are the plans and those types of things. But I think we are now starting to add on friends and family to this thing, not to create a virtual Jamaat Kana, but more of a virtual community of just family. And it's kind of our time together, like we used to when we were kids. After dinner, we'd all still sit around in one big, very long table. Now we're just doing it digitally. Yeah. I also think when you're kids, you have these lifestyles of being around your family all the time and relying on them and spending so much time with each other. And then you get older, you want freedom, and the whole world is your oyster. And then as you get wiser and experience life and really, truly understand how life works and the window of time that we have on this planet, then this pandemic happens. And even for me, it's made me realize how important family is. And even though we live in this globalized world with so much technology where we're able to live in different cities and go off and do our own thing, at the end of the day, it's just having that sense of community and those people to rely on and to connect with during such a stressful time, I think just is very healthy for ourselves as humans. I think you're 100% right. I mean, I think as you do get older and you settle in a little bit, you recognize the value of family and the value of community. It is incredibly important to reconnect, even with friends, seniors, friends of the family that we used to know and only got a chance to see once in a while or once a week in Jamaatana. We reach out to them too. Some of them are elderly now and will run over and grab some groceries or whatever and drop it off at their front door so that we're not risking them more than anybody else in terms of COVID and the virus. Maintaining that social distance, but at the same time, still being able to reach out and doing the right thing. I think it's very, very important. Well, that's it for this episode. Tune in next time to learn about how Ghalib moved to the United States. In the second half of Ghalib's story, he'll talk about how he chose his career by randomly flipping through a catalog in college and leaving it up to chance. He'll also share his advice for people unsure about their careers, And we'll talk about journalism and media in the digital age. Until then, be safe and be well. Thank you for listening to this episode of This My Connection. If you're enjoying the show so far, please share it with your friends and family. Show your support by subscribing and rating the show. Also, we really want to hear from you. I'm not just saying it every episode. Please send us your feedback and any topics you want to know more about. 
email us at ipnpodcast at ipnonline.net. I'm waiting for your emails. This episode was written by me and edited by Castle Lee. Our cover art is designed by Nadia Khan and Shaquille Momad. Marketing for The Smiley Connection is carried out by Shaquille, Amber Varani, and their team. Also, thanks to Zoha Momin, our patient and amazing project manager, and Farhan Manjiani for all of his excellent help and support. Our intro music is the funky podcast intro by Robert Reed. Other music included in this episode are Played by Ear from Unheard Music Concepts, Reality Cartwheeled by Dr. Turtle, Story by Maiden, and Tired of Life also by Maiden. The podcast would not have been possible without the teamwork and help from the people who believed in it. And for that, we're grateful. 